And so I learned, while researching this book, that Ulysses S. Grant was metal. I beg your pardon, sir, but I'm quite certain that Ulysses Grant was a flesh-and-blood human being who won a war and drank himself to death. That is straight-up metal. Sir, that's a roughly accurate assessment of his legacy. But my book, Ulysses S. Grant, An American Life, provides far more detail. Like how he supported the gold standard over the silver standard because he believed in the one true metal? Who or what are you, sir? I'm Nils Thunderson, host of Reign of Pod. Sponsored by Stamps.com. Use our code to stop licking envelopes and start licking Satan's boots. And I'm planning to post a YouTube video of myself drawing a pentagram in my own blood and setting fire to my signed first edition of your book as an offering to the Prince of Darkness. Does that offend you? Horribly. Unless you encourage millions of people to buy my book and do the exact same thing. Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, President 18, Ulysses S. Grant. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. Uh, Joe, so you've been reintroducing um, Dr. Norman. We should probably also reintroduce James. Oh, I introduced James. Yeah, I, 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 got, I got credit. And also introduce us as well. <laughs> okay, so this is Joe who kind of tries to more or less run this sort of, or just run the recording part of it, really. I'm Paul, who tries to undermine Joe's authority, much like William Seward did to Andrew Johnson. <laughs> I'm Tommy, who tries. <laughs> I'm Sandy, who is trying. And I'm Patrick, and I'm just here for the jokes. Hey, hey. And again, James McRae, uh, history teacher extraordinaire in Michigan, as is Dr. Matthew Norman, who we who have already heard of, uh, talk about Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson from his perch at a satellite of the University of Cincinnati. Shout out Bearcats. We did ask you for one more because as we go in from the Civil War to Reconstruction, and again, one of our pet themes of uh, presidential reinterpretations, uh, we do get to get to a president that I think is coming around. He's, I, I think, I think he, his reputation has been rehabbed, and that is Ulysses S. Grant, or as I, I should say, his reputation as president is rehab because I think his reputation as a military leader has probably never really has always been pretty darn high and my sense is is still pretty darn high. I don't know. I've heard a lot of, you know, Southerners who who generally consider Grant to be an overrated 
uh, general. Especially, especially, really? compared, especially compared to the beloved Robert E. Lee. Right. Are we really going to take uh, the Southerners' views? So I think they're, they're, they're very objective, Sandy. I don't know what you could possibly be referring <laughs> right. to here. So, Matt, I'm going to start out with an. Actually, if I may, if we're going to go there, let's also declare Ulysses S. Grant the greatest of the Ohio presidents, which I realize is like saying it's the tallest of the pigs. There are so many of them, Joe. I was trying to think of an Ohio president from around this time that wasn't involved in like massive corruption. (laughs) All of them. Was McKinley not? Did he just get shot too quickly to like really carry out a lot of corruption? He was too boring to be corrupt. Well, anyway, Dr. Norman, as we're as we're riffing through all of this, where would you start in discussing Ulysses S. Grant, the man, the myth, the legend, the president? Uh, I'd like to start with the dedication of his monument in Washington, D.C. in 1922, which was the 100th anniversary of his birthday. And it's it was a big deal at the time. Uh, but it, it was the, it's the second largest equestrian monument in the world. And the designers intended it to anchor one end of the, of the mall. And at the other end, you have the Lincoln Memorial. But we've often forgotten, I think, the Grant Monument. And I think that Grant's reputation has suffered a lot in the nearly 100 years since that monument was dedicated. And it's only been yeah, fairly recently, I think, that people are starting to take a, a new look at Grant and rehabilitate his reputation. Is, is the Crazy Horse Monument the, the biggest one then, or? Well, no, it's, it's a, I mean, the, the, that's a mountain, right? The, uh, I think the, the world- It's the a carved mountain, I would think it counts. Well, it's, yeah. He's on a horse. Yeah, <laughs> we need an art historian, but the, uh, I think they I mean like freestanding sculpture as opposed to being carved mm. in the side of a mountain. And I think the largest equestrian monument is to is in Italy to, I don't know, a king or something you could look up. But that, this is how it was touted, that the Grant Monument was the second largest equestrian monument in the world. But when it was dedicated, the speakers didn't talk about his presidency. And there was an event held in at his birthplace in Ohio that same day where President Harding, another Ohio president, <laughs> had reputation. He spoke and didn't, didn't talk about his presidency either. It was all about Grant the general and specifically the magnanimity that Grant showed the army of Robert E. Lee when they surrendered at Appomattox. And that was the message that Grant helped put the nation on the road to reconciliation by being so magnanimous to Lee and these rebels. And in fact, there were Confederate veterans present. And this just, uh, I never, I mean, this never ceases to amaze. There were Confederate veterans present at the dedication of this monument. Also, by the way, at the Lincoln Memorial a month later. But the, uh, the head of the, uh, the, the major Confederate veterans organization spoke at the dedication of the Grant Monument. And I think this is symbolic of, of how far the United States had gone to try and reconcile on terms largely dictated by the side that had surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. Sometimes history is written by the losers. 
<laughs> well, I think in, in our case with the Civil War, uh, you, you could make that a very strong argument. Now, Grant, he really wasn't good at anything except for war. He was a damn good soldier and an absolutely lousy farmer and businessman. Mm -hmm. Memoirist. He was a hell of a memoirist. He's one of the supposedly one of the best writers we ever had in the White House. We'll get yeah. to that. He was a great memoirist, and I think he he did Reconstruction very well. He was a good president. He was a good general. He was probably a competent leather tanner, which is one of the jobs he had. But uh, he was pretty much made by war, the Mexican-American War and the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Without those opportunities, poor bastard would have wound up working for his father-in-law all his life. Yeah. And I think when you look at both Grant and Lincoln, they rose very, very quickly. And there was really not a lot about either Grant or Lincoln that would make you think, hey, Lincoln will, will be our greatest president. There was, I think he rose to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who knew Grant in the army thought, well, you know, he was, he was a pretty good soldier. But did, did his colleagues think that he would be the great general of the Civil War? I, I don't know. I think that they both had a talent for rising to the occasion. Although and Grant, Grant looked really good in a uniform, which probably helped with the campaign literature. I'm sure, well, yes, I'm sure it did. <laughs> As I mean, Gang had, of Four once saying, I love a man in a uniform. They were nice uniforms back then, Joe. A lot of good buttons. March 27th, 1865, President Lincoln meets with Union Generals Ulysses Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman aboard the boat River Queen, their purpose to bring an end to the war. Painter George Healy is there to capture the scene. Mr. Lincoln, General Grant, General Sherman, it's an honor to be in the presence of men of peace. Thank you for leading the fight to ensure that all Americans can live free when our forefathers Yes, we have no need for soaring rhetoric. We're just a couple of Ohio boys and a gentleman from Illinois. Thank you, General Grant, though I'm actually from Kentucky. Or Indiana, it doesn't really matter. The home is just where you bury your mom. I'll just start setting up the canvas. Pretend I'm not even here. Already done, Abe? Bill? Here's a dozen cigars each. Let's talk. I'm happy our visits to General Grant go inside, General Sherman. We need to end this war. The American people are losing faith. How fares the fighting? Much better since we began waging a total war last summer. A total war? It's a time-saving measure, Mr. Healy. Most armies waste a lot of time distinguishing between military and civilian targets. Not us. It does more than just save time. It breaks the will of the enemy. Crops destroyed, cities leveled to the ground... A man fighting for his home doesn't fight so well if the home is burning behind him. But don't we run the risk of creating in this nation great animosity and anger which might never leave the face of this continent? No, sir. When the man turns to look at his burning home, we tend to fill his back with enough lead to start a pencil factory. Which is good, because if there were pencil factories down south, there aren't any now. What a tragic necessity that we can only achieve peace through the utter and complete destruction of our enemy. It's really more of a tactical decision there, Healy. 
I've been having my men tear up railroad rails, heat them up over a furnace, and then twist them into knots. Ah, yes, the Sherman bow tie. Very fashionable. I prefer the bow to other cravats and foulards. We're driving old Dixie down. Why, Bill here said the defenses at Atlanta burned so quickly that the city's hopes are gone with the wind. Um, General Sherman, do you get on well with the Southern Bells? I usually target the churches first. Mr. President, I assure you, there soon won't be any churches left to resist us in the whole of the rebelling states. I'm relieved to hear it, Mr. Grant. I must vouchsafe many of your fellow officers seem to think you were drunk. And after the losses we suffered at Cold Harbor and Petersburg. I was stone sober at both engagements. Really? But the way they went, maybe you should have had a drink. I made the conscious choice to sacrifice my men with a clear mind. Can't make an omelet without cracking a few infantrymen. Well, I did want generals who could work out the awful arithmetic. And I'm pretty good at arithmetic. I was a dry goods clerk before the war. Um, heavy must be the head that sends men to their death and dismemberment and other horrors in the service of a greater good. But I know that your passion for freedom would lead you to risk all in the name of the, our union. It's not really passion, Healy, just math. Our armies outnumber those of the rebelling states about two or three to one. So we only need to kill Southern soldiers by half. You boys know how to kill a man by half? Make him drink chicory coffee for four years, then drag him to Pennsylvania. <laughs> I lost almost 13,000 men trying to take Cold Harbor, while Lee only lost a little over 5,000. But I can replace each of my 13,000, and he can't replace even one. Oh, a grave tragedy. More of an accounting error. Can't win them all, though. Now, I mean no offense, but I must say, I thought that all three of you distinguished gentlemen would be a little more hot-blooded about the war and not quite so cold as ice. Where is the passion for liberty that led this country to war? Mr. Lincoln, was it not your pen that freed the slaves? Only in the rebelling states. I know better than to bite off more than I can chew. I stand in awe of your prowess, really. I just didn't know the bloody business of war could become so mundane. Well, I hate to disappoint you, Mr. Healy. But we're not knights nor heroes of old. We're more like analysts. We look at a situation, formulate a strategy, and roll the dice on it. And the dice are people. We're not glorious or glamorous. Just workaday generals. I'm just here to make sure the trains don't run on time. Sure, we're lucky to fight for a noble cause, but at the end of the day, I'm just a man standing in front of a painter, asking him to stop bringing up the thousands of deaths weighing on my conscience. Gentlemen, enough of this. Mr. Healy, show us the painting so far. Well, it's just a sketch. I was thinking this corner could use either a rainbow or a stack of Confederate skulls, whichever is the better symbol of triumph. And what would you call this masterpiece? The Peacemakers. So I think that this idea that Grant was a butcher was a myth. Uh, another big myth. Yes, that, that, was, that was Sherman. Sherman <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't butchering his own men. I'll tell you that. Well, and I think the reality is, is that by 1864, 1865, you have the industrialization of war. Really, for the first time, 
on that scale in human history where you have these two large industrial economies going, you know, full bore at each other. And of course you're going to, and you know, with new weapons and technology, of course you're going to have appalling casualties. Um, you know, and, and, you know, that was borne out in all subsequent industrialized wars, you know, whether it was, you know, the Franco-Prussian or, or World War One, half a century later, that that's, that's what war was becoming. And I think Grant and Sherman understood that, you know, better than many of their colleagues. Although compared to World War One, I'm thinking like, well, the last before that giant, like use of the wave attack formation, where you just send a mass of men at the guns is Pickett's charge. It's from the south. Well, I mean, I mean not Crimea, the, the charge oh, of light brigade in Crimea, yeah. Well, that'd be the 70s then, right? This will shift gears a little bit, but sort of about the characters of Grant and Johnson, because I feel like one of the popular myths about both is that they're drunkards, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. Especially Grant gets that reputation, although he famously said of Johnson when he was in office, He's either intoxicated on alcohol or laudanum. I'm trying to think what that was in reference to. <laughs> but um, how how true is that, and how much is slander or like mythologizing of these of these men? Yeah, I, I I think it's pretty clear that that Johnson was either inebriated or severely hungover on inauguration day, 1865, right? And I I I don't know how much he was drinking during his presidency. Um, Grant, yeah, there were always rumors that, that Grant drank, uh, but Lincoln had someone follow Grant around. And I think a lot of that is, is myth. Although, you know, we were talking about the swing around the circle. And I think there, there is some evidence that Grant was started drinking on that tour. I mean, he stuck with Andrew, with, with, uh, Andrew, Andrew Johnson, Johnson day and night. You're if you were drink going to pick up a bottle, that would be the time when you're <laughs> essentially dragooned into going on to this awful tour with Johnson and being a stage prop for someone that you bitterly disagree with. But then there was also the stories that uh, Grant suffered from what we would now call migraine headaches, but they didn't know what that was back then and that the alcohol quite literally was self-medication to try to keep that pain down. Yeah, that 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 may very well have been the case. Yeah. Not, not the, of course, hangovers make them a lot worse, but that's a different discussion. You say, did it affect their reputations at the time, though, or was that more of a later, you know, like our post? No, there were there were accusations at the time. That was one of the reasons why the the War Department sent someone to kind of shadow grant to see you know if there was any truth to this there was a legendary comment by lincoln who sent a barrel of whatever bourbon he prefers to all of my other generals yeah right so let's say he was a drunk yeah well then let's get my other generals but, drunk but that was also an era where there was a lot of public inebriation in part because it was one of the first eras and i know this from being reading michael pollan and some of the believe it or not that uh there was just so much corn that they needed to do something with it. And so there was a lot of making of whiskey to just use the damn corn. And well, people drank it. Yeah, that was a great way for farmers to market their surplus was to distill it. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't spoil. And there was a big demand for it. <laughs> yeah. Pe people drank a lot more in the 19th century than we do now. Although I guess with the pandemic 
alcohol consumption was way up the past year, but. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Send some guns to that outpost. Maybe some horses to that outpost. What the hell? Who is it? It's me, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Like the Angel Gabriel, I have come to Army Headquarters bearing tidings of great joy for you, General Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. Spill. I just received this telegram from Chicago. I have come to tell you that you have been nominated by the Republican Party for President of the United States. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Oughtn't you celebrate more than that? Well, I'd light a cigar, but I'm already smoking one. Uh, So what's with all the hubbub outside? The hubbub, uh, General, is a host of grateful citizens prepared to sing your praises as you march to Camden Station and board a train to Chicago that shall bear you to glory. Ugh, can't I just hire a cab? What rattle-trap Washington conveyance could serve as a fitting chariot for a triumphant Caesar? Oh, Jesus, Ed, don't get carried away. But how can I not? After all, it was you, General, who shielded me from President Johnson's sinister designs by refusing to accept a fraudulent appointment as Secretary of War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just following the law. Anyway, uh, can you hold off on the parade until I've at least finished my acceptance speech? Why, of course, General. To hear the words of the victor of Vicksburg, the wisdom of America's savior, your loyal future subjects would wait hours, days, weeks. No need to line up at the privies. I'm done. Goodness gracious, you finished your speech already? I'm a fast writer. Here goes. Thank you, Republican Party, for nominating me. I'll try not to screw up. And that's all you want to say? Pretty much. But General, a frightened and confused nation awaits your vision for our salvation. Ed, I just want a war. I didn't do it by telling my battle plans to the whole damn world. That may suffice as a military strategy, General, but as a political leader, you must be more forthcoming with your aspirations. There are many great issues that shall demand your attention once you assume the mantle of president. Oh, yeah? Like what? Why, our national deficit has skyrocketed because of the war. Any leader must strike a Solomon-like compromise between the moneyed interests who demand fiscal austerity and the agricultural interests who thrive on easy credits. I got some ideas. Thank heavens. But let us not forget the freedmen. Any chief executive faces the Herculean task of securing the rights of the newly freed slaves. I have a plan for that. And we shall all be thrilled to hear it. Last but not least are the Indians. Uh, How are we to deal with the savages who serve as obstacles to America's manifest destiny? Fine, fine. I'll write another speech. What a relief. Your reticence was starting to make me question whether you even wanted to live in the White House. Of course I want to live in the White House. Beats moving back to Galena. That's your greatest motivation for seeking the presidency? You ever been to Galena? Well... No, but I'm given to understand that its vineyards produce the finest wines in Illinois. (laughs) Yeah.
That's like being the best Christian in a horror house. Okay, done with the new speech. That took long enough. What can I say? I'm slowing down with age. Anyway, here goes. <laughs> My fellow Americans, as president, I plan to eliminate the national debt by putting the country back on the gold standard. I know farmers are going to complain, but that's what they do best. Also, once Negroes gain the right to vote, I will send the army into the South to ensure free and fair elections. I'll make some enemies of that move, but my duty is to enforce the law. And finally, we're going to stop violating every treaty we sign with the Indians. The way we treat the native population is cruel and corrupt, and I will not tolerate corruption in the Grant administration. You know, I think I prefer your first draft. Thought you'd see the light. Okay, let me grab a few cigars and we can get this show on the road. Now, obviously, we Ulysses S. Grant is not the first general to ascend to the presidency, nor will he be the last. Um, you had mentioned in the previous episode when he toured with Andrew Johnson that Grant was the star. So clearly his reputation as a hero had preceded him. Um, one question I always like to ask is, did the guy really want to be president? And I suppose I can ask that of Grant. Yeah, I think he did. Um, he wrote a letter to his friend and colleague, General William Tecumseh Sherman. And he said that his decision to seek the presidency was based on his fear that these politicians would, in Grant's words, uh, lose us the victory in the costly war that we have just gone through. He, he saw for, he had a front row seat to the disaster that was the Johnson administration. And I think he, he thought that as president, he would be able, his, his, uh, in his acceptance letter of the Republican nomination, he says, let us have peace. And that really resonated with people. But as it turned out, uh, how Grant defined peace was, was at odds with what uh, a lot of white Southerners wanted. Grant ended up being very committed to enforcing those new amendments to the constitution. And this wasn't something that Grant was always in favor of. It's something that he gradually came to embrace. And seeing what Johnson, what a mess Johnson was making of reconstruction is what really I think prompted Grant to, to seek the presidency. A theme with a lot of this era of a Republican presidents is the sort of incredibly corrupt cabinets that the president seems not to know that much about. So I, I was wondering if our two uh, historians could speak to maybe how complicit do you think Grant was in some of the scandals that rocked cabinet members? I don't know. I think that Grant was, again, he was a political neophyte. He had never held elected office, as has been pointed out. I think he was, you know, he, he initially hired people that he knew, and these people took advantage of their positions. And Grant himself was not 
was not corrupt, but certainly, yeah, some of the people in his administration were. Um, I don't know what more. Yeah. Uh, was was uh, uh, James? James, do you have any uh, comment on that? <laughs> no, I, I generally agree with that perspective. I think that that it's when you're a politician, it's good to have political skills and. Grant was a decisive leader, but I think he lacked some of the political skills that like Lincoln had in terms of being able to manage the people around him better. I mean, again, you see, you know, Lincoln had this whole thing with Seward and Seward was clearly trying to use him and and Lincoln managed to manage Seward. Right. He took this guy who was a bundle of intelligence, who was kind of undermining him and instead turn him around and bring him onto his side. And I think that Grant never quite had the political ability to do that. It's not an easy thing to do. It's it's not something that I think most people have the capability to do. But I think that's why I think Grant is not quite as in the same stature of political leadership or political greatness that Lincoln is, is, is he does have these kind of shortcomings. It's like he gets B's as opposed to A's. Um, Grant, I'm going to theorize that he had a knack for trusting the wrong person and he triggered a uh, market panic just to piss off his brother-in-law. Did he not? Oh, this is the, uh, is Black this Friday? Yeah. With, uh, was it Google? Which Black Friday are we talking Google about? Fisk? Yeah. The 1869. 1869, not the one that inspired the Steely Dan song, but yeah, there was, uh, <laughs> Jay Gold and Jim Fisk, Fisk yeah. yeah, talked his, talked his brother-in-law into, make, they thought because of their access via his brother-in-law that Grant was with their gold hoarding scheme. <laughs> right. And he didn't go along with it. Yeah, Grant uh, pretty much uh, tanked the price of gold by ordering $4 million worth of it sold, destroying their, <laughs> destroying the value of their hoard. Yeah, well, I think that was that was actually the right economic lever to, to pull at that point was was to try to because it, it, because as gold had inflated in price, it was really causing those people who held greenbacks, which were a lot of kind of the common folks and also kind of your commercial banks to all of a sudden they were in a panic because all of a sudden the greenbacks they held had no uh, were, were becoming more less and less worth. So when people came in and wanted to exchange their their greenbacks for gold, they, the gold was just astronomically expensive so the the it was it was short-term pain but it ultimately was the right economic move was to try to release some pressure on the gold market by selling gold reserves and as a bonus Um, you get to flip off your annoying (laughs) brother-in-law here we are mr corbin in your suggested disguises and they're perfect guaranteed to fool my brother-in-law Gold, you look just like a bleeding heart reformer. And Fisk, you look and smell just like a dirt poor farmer. Well, thank you. But was it absolutely necessary to spatter these overalls with cow patties? The more authentic, the better, Jim. Exactly. Ulysses is going to take the bait hook, line, and stinker. Ha <laughs> ha, stinker, damage. <laughs> if President Grant sees through this charade, we just might. No worries. The mark, I mean the man... He's smart about winning wars, but a fool about important stuff like money. Can't count to 20 with his boots on. Virginia says their father almost fired him as a clerk for giving out the wrong change. Well, then it sounds like Fisk and Gould are as good as gold. 
Won't you tell the president he has visitors? I'm not sure we should trust this fellow, Jay. Oh, but Jim, he has the president's ear. Who doesn't rely on the wisdom and counsel of their brother-in-law? Anyone who's ever had one. Besides, I feel like a bad American to be in the White House while covered in dung. A good thing you weren't here for Andrew Jackson's first inaugural. Dung was mandatory attire at that soiree. Besides, shouldn't you feel like a bad American for hoodwinking the president into raising the price of gold? Ah, Jay, what if Grant is smarter than his buffoon of a brother-in-law says? That man outwitted Robert E. Lee, after all. Grant didn't outwit Lee, he outdunned him. If Lee lost 5,000 men, he had to retreat down the Rappahannock. If Grant lost 5,000 men, he ordered 5,000 more from a Bowery saloon and kept on fighting. Gold reached a record high price this morning, Jay. We're already wealthy. Why are we being so greedy? Greedy? Americans aren't greedy, Jim. We're ambitious. Now can it with the heartfelt terror and make with the fake. Right this way, you will... Here are those two authentic, suffering, 100% honest Americans I wanted you to meet. Jesus Christ, this room smells like... Shoot, Mr. President Grant. I'm sorry. I'm Homer Hayseed from Fumblebuck, Iowa. And I was so excited to come to Washington that I didn't have time to change my poor, simple, hard-working farmer's clothes before I left. Yes, poor, simple Homer is here at my invitation. I'm Ben Evelance of the American Niceness Advancement League. <laughs> Doesn't that spell anal? <laughs> to sophisticates like you, maybe, but our mission is hardly so elitist. We advocate for impoverished farmers whose livelihoods are threatened by the low price of gold. Hey, I've been hearing all about that. Yule, did you see those stories in the New York Times Herald Post Tribune? I ignore the papers. Except for the weather and the funnies. Then may I educate you about how low gold prices are cheapening crops until they're worth less than- Shucks! Is that why I can't get more than half a penny for a bushel of corn? Gee willikers, someone's gotta do something about them their low gold prices. My family ain't eaten a decent meal since Aunt Luella died. And she was gamey as- Hey! I know how you can help, Yule! Tell the treasury to sell less gold so the price stays high. Some speculators may make a million or two, but it's worth it to save the farmer. I've got great sympathy for the plight of the American farmer, boys. Between wars, I tried my hand at farming. Lost my shirt so many times, my farmer's tan went halfway to my nuts. Saints be praised. You've seen the light? Damn straight. Tomorrow. I plan to have the treasury sell $4 million worth of gold. The price will plummet. It's going to be one Black Friday on Wall Street. But um, uh, uh, that'll hurt the poor, hapless, struggling American farmer like me. Uh, You were a farmer yourself, sir. Indeed, which is why I know that everything hurts the American farmer. High prices, low prices, bad weather, good weather, fertile wives, barren wives, the list goes on. Not that you'd know anything about it, you imposter. Imposter? But, Mr. President, I'm Homer Hayman. Hayseed. Hayseed! Drop the act, pal. I've been in enough barns and army camps to know the difference between human and animal waste. That manure on your britches came right out of a Manhattan privy. 
Authentic, eh? What can I say? It was cheap. You have us cornered, Mr. Grant, as we once hoped to corner the gold market. I'm Jay Gould, and this is Jim Fisk. We're in stocks. Oh, you will be when my Justice Department is done with you. But your plan to sell gold will trigger a panic. Fortunes will be wiped out. How could you live with yourself? Comfortably. I sent thousands of fine young men to their deaths on the fields of Vicksburg. You think I'll lose sleep over Cornelius Vanderbilt eating cabbage instead of caviar? Boy, the nerve of these guys. What a pair of shysters. They sure had me fooled, though. I am so naive. Um, um, thanks, Yule. But why did you stick your used cigar in my mouth? As a way of saying, kiss my butt. Did you really think I'd fall for this? I want a war, you idiot. I know when I'm being led into an ambush. Goodbye, gentlemen. Oh, by the way, Fisk, you might want to get those dungarees laundered. You'll need them when you're looking for day labor. Well, I guess that could have gone better, huh? Waterloo could have gone better. That was a disaster. Well, it's Fisk's fault for wearing the wrong costume. That's what you get when you don't know... Shut up, you pompous fool. Stop pretending that you aren't ruined like us. I doubt that. I'm married to Grant's favorite sister. The worst that'll happen to me is a few awkward family dinners. But uh, you two probably can't afford third-class tickets back to New York. There's a pretty big train yard on the edge of town if you want to make like hobos and ride the rails. At least you're dressed for it, Fisk. <laughs> anyway, good luck. How exactly did I let you talk me into this? I hope you can forgive me. Ah, heck. I already have. Here, to show that there's no hard feelings, let me pull you close into a warm brotherly hug. Why, that's awfully nice of- Ooh. I think, I, I think that the I, I, I'm a little bit like I, I definitely agree with the perspective on Grant as a as a civil rights president and a reconstructionist that, you know, he's the, he's the greatest civil rights president, you know, between Lincoln and Johnson to be sure that he was the one person who, you know, was really willing to use federal muscle to enforce civil rights laws. But I'm a little bit more circumspect with some of the other aspects of his presidency admittedly, I think when we talk about some of the economic stuff, the federal government was kind of tinkering around the edges. A lot of the major pushes of the economy at this point were, were just kind of, you know, they're happening naturally. They're happening because of market forces that were already existent um, and that things that the federal government was doing were kind of playing around the edges, but weren't necessarily the major story. I think the larger issue here was, and, and I, I guess it would have taken someone with an immense you know, a good deal of foresight to kind of be able to foresee and move against this. But I think Grant's failure is kind of in preventing the Republican Party to be kind of bought over time by industrial interests. I think this is where the industrial interests, the robber barons really start to, you know, mm -hmm. start to grab political control of the Republican Party. And I think that Grant is part of this because a lot of the first kind of his first go around of cabinet picks are people who he knew who were friends, who were successful in private business, not necessarily with a lot of political experience. I think Grant gets better as he goes, but I think that the commercialization of the Republican Party that happened over the late 19th century really has its 
origins in Grant, although again, I don't think Grant himself was corrupt. He certainly, I think, was ineffectual in preventing it. Kind of turned a blind eye to the corruption around him. Or he was so drunk he didn't notice. But there was even talk. There was talk. Grant was still popular even Mm -hmm. after his second term. There was talk of a potential third term for Grant. And you think about the precedent that George Washington established by only serving two terms. And there was a lot of pushback against the idea of of anyone, even a popular hero from the Civil War like Grant seeking a third term. But there were still Republicans uh, as late as 1880 talking about drafting Grant to run again for a, for a third term. I mean, he remained very popular. And, uh, and that, that's why I think of that monument in Washington from 1922. It took way longer than they thought it would to get that monument completed. But I think that's evidence of just the high esteem in which Grant was held in the early 20th century. But again, it was largely because of his role as a general and, and not his role as a president. Um, now, Grant, after his, I think we're uh, put, putting some, shoveling some dirt on for Ulysses here, but uh, he doesn't have the most successful post-presidency in history, shall we say. In fact, he loses a lot of money, doesn't he? He does. Uh, he, you know, he traveled around the world. And you know, there's a lot of interesting things about his around the world tour that you can read. But yeah, he made some really bad investments and, and then he gets sick with throat cancer. And it's, um, you know, that's why he writes his memoirs. He knows he's dying. Because his friend Mark Twain told him to. Well, yeah, and, and he, yeah, he makes this deal with Mark Twain. Mark Twain had also lost a lot of money. Oh. And they, they make this deal where Twain will publish Grant's memoirs. And the hope and expectation is that this will be a great bestseller that will kind of set up Grant's family after he's gone. Which it and, and it did. And, and Grant finished those memoirs just a few weeks before he, before he died. Samuel, Sam, you have a visitor. There you are. What on God's green earth are you doing? Well, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm smoking a cigar and thinking about other cigars I smoked. You lost the whole family fortune on some cockamamie invention, and I get a bill from the cigar store for $50? They say you've been buying Havanas by the box on credit. Well, there's my day up in smokes. Why, you no good. Shouldn't you be working on your new novel? We need money. I am working on it. I'm halfway through, and my two lead characters just went over a waterfall and died. They die in the middle of the book? Or maybe they don't. I don't know. Olivia, I'm lost. I got Huck cross-dressing. They faked her dance like ten times. I meant to free that slave character Jim early on, but I forgot and just shoved it in at the end. This book is a mess. Of course it is, you addle-brained river rat. Nobody likes a sequel anyway. Why don't you write a memoir like we talked about? You could call it... uh, Mark Twain, An American Life. Or how about River, a hardly newer? Now darn it, Sam, take this seriously. I already managed the money. You have to earn it. Or else what? Or else I'll find a pair of sharp scissors and turn you into the Gelded Age. Oof. You know, for abroad, you're not so innocent. Uh, Didn't you say I had a visitor? Who is this mysterious stranger? Oh, that's right. I can't believe I left him waiting. President Grant is here for you. 
Grant's here. Hmm. Memoir. This is Grant. Uh, you know what, Olivia? Why don't you send him in? Good evening, Mr. Clemens. Or should I call you Mr. Twain? I know you're no stranger to name changes yourself, Mr. Grant. Say, what do you do with an out-of-work general? I don't know. What? Hire him. <laughs> now, uh, you would want to see me? Yeah, yeah, I'm, yes, I'm in quite a pickle. I lost a bit of money in a railroad investment, and, well, I know you hit some hard times lately as well. How are you holding up? Oh, splendidly. My little financial setback has only spurred my creativity. Each day I find myself sitting in a dark room, turning out page after page. A new novel for the American people? Oh, better. A memoir. It's the most fun I've ever had writing. A memoir? Publishers are always asking me to write one. They sound powerful boring. Is it hard? Not at all. Not at all. It's easier than fiction. You don't have to make up a darn thing. You just remember what happened and write it down. It's that easy. I bet you can't make a red cent from it. Guaranteed to take you from Papa to Prince in a single print. You're pulling my leg, Twain. Oh, not at all. Not at all. The demand is huge. What's the best-selling book you can think of? Why, the Holy Bible, of course. Sure. Uh, The New Testament is just four memoirs by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, that other fella. John. Out of the back door to your left. But what about Paul's epistles? Oh, those are just collected letters. It's like a memoir, but lazier. Just letters from the earth. Darn it. I could have fixed my troubles if I hadn't turned those publishers down. Well, here's an idea, and I'm just spitballing here. Um, what if I publish you? You? Well, why not? I'm a literary genius. Besides, would you want some fat cat New York publisher taking 5% of your profits? No. Of course you don't. No, no, no. That's why you're going to sign with a friend who will take 10%. Now, why not get to work right away? Use my writing desk. Well, if you really think it'll work. I will go drone demand for your book. <clears throat> Say, now, I'll, I'll probably need $50 to get started. Uh, c- consider it a grant, I suppose. Uh, if you say so, here you are. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, anytime, Mule, anytime. Now, I'll go get a fresh cigar and start on the business, and you just stay here and paint that fence. What? Oh, nothing. Uh, Fare thee well, Mr. President. Oh, Mr. Grant, you're still here. Sam set me up with a brilliant plan. He's going to publish my memoirs. I see. And did you set any conditions before you surrendered your publishing rights? He's taking 10%. 10%? Better make it 15 And next time, give the cash to me. Good night, Puddinghead. I wanted to talk. I wanted to, if there was anything more about the Mark Twain Ulysses Grant friendship. How did that start, and what did they see in each other? You know, I um, when I was teaching uh, a class a few years ago, I'd never. I mean, you talk about myths, and you know, the, the big myths about Grant were that he was a drunk and that he was a butcher. But I had a student say, "Well, he didn't write his memoirs." And I said, what do you mean he didn't write his memoirs? And uh, oh, Mark Twain wrote them. <laughs> and I said, no, 
Grant wrote them. We actually have the, the manuscript in Grant's hand. He wrote his memoir. So it's interesting that, yeah, you have this connection between Twain and Grant. I think Twain, he lost his money on some kind of an invention that uh, I just, I don't know. That's, we've been talking for a while and I'm not. <laughs> but it was some kind of an invention that Twain had sunk a lot of money into and lost. And Grant uh, was not a good politician. He was also not a good investor and he'd lost a lot of money. And I think that this was, a, this, this was just an ideal opportunity for them that Twain saw the potential in Grant's memoirs. Again, Grant, Grant was still this major figure and people wanted to know what Grant thought of his time as a general in the Civil War. This was the general that won the Civil War. And yeah, it's this great partnership. There's been a, at least one book written about Twain and Grant and this relationship and how they, they both profited immensely off of this. It's just that Grant didn't live to see it. He didn't live to see how successful his memoirs were. I think they got to know each other. Um, I think uh, like might have had summer homes near one another or something like that. That I think that was their connection. Yeah. Uh, you could look that up. I love it. All right. And so you can see between his affairs, the murders that he ordered, and his refusal to divorce his evil wife, the book Clinton Cash proves that its history of Bill Clinton was the best history of a president ever written. The end. Thank you, Patrick. Are you out of your mind? Just watch. Miss Sandy, you teach this in your class? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll forgive him, Mr. Jerome. Magnificent. See? Really? The Jerome Foundation Student History Competition was made for presentations like that one. Oh, my God. This fine young man has made a strong statement to win our competition. And the tablet computer that comes with it. You gotta give him what they want. Well, we do have one more speech to hear from Sally. I'll show you. Sally. Thank you, Miss Sandy. And thank you, Mr. Jerome, for your contest and your family support of our school. You're welcome. Continue. The best presidential biography was actually the first presidential biography ever written by America's Civil War hero and 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> After Grant was done being president, he thought he was done being a public figure, but he always had headaches and smoked a lot, so that was kind of bad. The man was a drunk. Well, Grant lost his money when a son's business went bankrupt, so he was broke. He has that in common with other presidents. Right? Please continue, Sally. Anyway. Grant needed to make money, and a friend of the president thought Grant had a lot of stories to tell, and that if he told them, he could make some money. Grant's friend was none other than Mark Twain. Really? Pretty cool, right? Very cool. Uh-oh. So Grant started writing, and he was good, and he made money. He picked himself up by his bootstraps. And that was a good thing, because then Grant discovered he had cancer. Oh, oh no. no! So Twain told Grant he should write his biography, which Grant did as fast as he could because he started to die of the throat cancer. 
Oh, no. Grant couldn't talk. He was in pain, wrapped in blankets, and had to write in pencil. No! Yes! I'm so screwed. And just as he finished the book, Grant died. Aww. Aww. But the book became one of the most popular books ever. Grant's book made so much money, it took care of his family even after he died. I read it, and it's good. That a girl. Wow. Man. And that's why the best presidential biography is the first presidential biography, Ulysses S. Grant, The End. What a wonderful report. I never knew all that about Grant. Quite a story. Thank you, Mr. Jerome. And that is the last entry in the Jerome Foundation Student History Competition. A very strong competition this year. Mm. Well played. Grant's interesting. Now, I imagine you need a little time to figure out oh. who... No need. I have made my decision. Oh. Please, go ahead. The Jerome Foundation Student History Competition usually only gives one award a year. But this year, I was so impressed with this competition, we shall give two awards. Oh, well, that is an exciting decision. I would like to offer an honorary mention and a prize for that honorary mention to the student whose work showed initiative and told a wonderful story. That honorary mention will be for Sally's report on Ulysses S. Grant. Oh. Miss Sally, you will receive a set of Jerome Foundation pencils. Congratulations. Uh, thank you, Mr. Jerome. And the grand prize of the Jerome Foundation Student History Competition is the report that best exemplifies that the truth must be constantly repeated and taught in history classes. And that was Mr. Patrick's report on the Clintons. Yeah! I mean, <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Jerome and the Jerome Foundation. Thank you, Mr. Jerome. The tablet computer and the pencil set shall be awarded in assembly later today. Thanks again, Mr. Jerome. And let me take you to the school board meeting before the luncheon and award ceremony. Thank you for coming, for your foundation sponsorship, and for your support of our school system. <clears throat> Class. Thank you, Thank Mr. You, Mr. Jerome. Jerome. This way, Mr. Jerome. I am confident in the youth of our community. Aren't you? <laughs> the Clintons are murderers? Eh, it's bullcrap. And you won? Hey, uh, you got a prize this time, too. It, it's not a tablet computer, but pencils. It's progress. It is. Pencils can be used as weapons. Uh. <laughs> James. I, in, in prepping for these episodes, I've been thumbing through this book which is the president's fact book um and it's like reading it looks like it's uh uh maybe it was first published in 2004 this edition was 2009 um but what's interesting is that how closely it it, it adheres to some of the the more traditional interpretations for example i i found it's it's andrew johnson chapter to be largely apologetic um and this line i think really strikes me as kind of the 
um, the uninter the unreinterpreted Grant as as the way kind of historians had looked at Grant before you know his recent reinterpretation, and it says. Grant's actions on behalf of African-Americans and Native Americans represented honest attempts at reform and social improvement, but the nation as a whole wasn't ready to support racial equality. And that, of course, leads me to think that when we're talking about the nation as a whole, we must not be talking about Native Americans or Black people, because my guess is that they were pretty ready for racial equality. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny how many people, how much you can elide in the state, in this phrase, uh, everyone. <laughs> uh, Dr. Norman, you, what, are, what are some of your own publications that our listeners might enjoy? Well, I, at this point in my career, I've done mostly articles, but I've got, I've been working for way too long on a major project to collect uh, African-American speeches and writings on Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. and it's finally, I think, going to come out early next year. We are Right now, and the pandemic has interfered with this, we're, we, we begin with Frederick Douglass in 1858, and we go all the way up through uh, President Obama in 2009. So we have 150 years of African-American thoughts on Abraham Lincoln. But what we've been spending the last several months on is nailing down copyright permissions for things that have been written since the mid-1920s. And that's the last step. We just have to, to clear those permissions before the book goes into production. So we're hoping to get all that wrapped up within the next few weeks. And we hope <laughs> that, uh, that before uh, that comes out, we have to figure out another reason to bring you on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to come on and plug it. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be published by the University of Illinois Press. Oh. And it's going to be a really big book. We're hoping though we have a subvention, so we'll hope to keep the cost down. But I, you know, it'll be a it'll be a big, substantial book, part of a great series that Knox College has done, the Lincoln Studies Center series. And again, a shout out to Jennifer Gallus and uh, Sarah Bird who introduced us to you. Yeah, I did something for. I mean, I went to. I'm a Knox College alum, and oh, Jennifer they, told us that. Trust me. Okay. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. It was a pleasure once again. And, and Dr. Norman, thanks for uh, joining us. It was a pleasure to uh, meet you as well. And uh, everybody have a great evening. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and The Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page at simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to like.